So picking off where we picking up where we left off yesterday, we were talking about Abu Bakr radiallahu anhu, the closest companion of the Prophet وسلم, and undoubtedly our leader after the Prophet وسلم. And uh, today we're going to be touching upon his role during this sort of second phase. Of course, these qualities were present throughout all his phases, but this second phase in particular highlights the love that Abu Bakr anhu had for the Prophet وسلم. Uh, just to recap what we talked about yesterday to bring everyone up to speed, we mentioned how Abu Bakr anhu in his early days of Islam, he accepted Islam immediately. And immediately after accepting Islam, he did a couple of things. One is that he reached out to many people early on, within the first one or two days, uh, very prominent, who eventually became very prominent Sahaba, and he took them to the Prophet and they accepted Islam. And we highlighted that whoever guides toward good, they get that reward as well. And this applies to us as well. And Abu Bakr anhu was able to elevate his status so quickly early on because he made it a point to take people to toward uh, the Prophet So that was what we kind of talked about yesterday. So one was his, his role as a facilitator, right? Remember, we talked about him being a facilitator. He facilitated the deen of so many early Sahaba and they became very prominent, like Abdurrahman bin Awf, Uthman bin Affan, Sa'ad bin Abi Waqas, Zubair bin Awam, Talha bin Ubaidullah, Abu Ubaidah, Arqam bin Abil Arqam. These are very prominent people that accepted Islam within the first one or two days because Abu Bakr facilitated their deen for them. We mentioned how he was the he also facilitated deen for slaves at the time. He was the first real emancipator. Someone who went around and very quickly tried to free or purchase any slave, purchase the freedom of any slave that he could find that was being oppressed. For instance, Bilal and we mentioned Lubaina, we mentioned Khabab, etc. So this is something that he facilitated early on and these individuals went on to become very prominent people and all of what they later did in life went into his account. So he was the master facilitator. What's interesting, and I didn't mention this yesterday, about him emancipating people and freeing, freeing slaves. Uh, he used to go around and free slaves with, with his wealth as, as, as quickly as he could. And his father at the time, who wasn't Muslim, his name was Abu Quhafa, he was critical of Abu Bakr. And when he saw that he was going around and purchasing slaves or Muslim slaves, he asked him, what's the point of this? Like, what's the, what's the utility? I mean, these individuals, they're relatively low class in society. What, what, what strength are you giving to the ummah? What strength are you giving to Islam by purchasing these people? It makes sense for you to bring and recruit very prominent people within the community to accept Islam. Why are you wasting your money on these people who are relatively low class and they're not going to give strength to the community? What's the point? Uh, so Abu Bakr al-Anhu responded in such a beautiful way. He said, I'm doing this because I'm looking and I'm seeking the face of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Meaning, it doesn't, it's irrelevant to me how prominent these people are seen in society. I'm doing this for my own benefit. I, I recognize that if Allah ta'ala's attention will be upon me if I make these, these steps. Uh, and because of this, the Mufassirun mentioned in the end of Surah Al-Layl, وَمَا لِأَحَدٍ مِّن نِعْمَةٍ تُجْزَى إِلَّا بِتِغَاءَ وَجْهِ رَبِّهِ الْأَعْلَىٰ وَلَسَوْفَ يَرْضَىٰ These verses are in relation to Abu Bakr anhu and his purchasing of slaves. Meaning, he was doing this for none other than the pleasure of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. It didn't matter to him what strength or what not was being given. This was his, this was his attitude. So this, this is all a recap of yesterday. A facilitator and an example for us as someone whom we should look toward as facilitating deen for, 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 believer, for, for, for people in general. Either taking them toward Islam 
or freeing them so that they can the, so that they can practice deen in, in in the way that in the way that they'd like and then you get the likes of Bilal for instance so today we're going to talk about his role as the close friend of the Prophet and this quality is highlighted in this middle phase and there's two ways by, we, by which we see this manifesting the most one is that Abu Bakr was someone he never doubted Rasulullah he never doubted Rasulullah that's the first way in which we'll see his love for the Prophet and his friendship being manifested and the second is that he didn't want any difficulty to ever reach Rasulullah he never wanted any difficulty to ever reach the Prophet when, so if we keep these two things in mind, we'll see how this quality of friendship with the Prophet manifests. And I'm going to take us through incident by incident where this is exemplified. We'll start with the first, which is that Abu Bakr was someone who was known amongst the companions to never doubt the Prophet If the Prophet said something or suggested something or felt a certain way, he without hesitation would accept it. Without hesitation he accepted it because he knew this was coming from Allah. Many other people would have to process it and think about it and say, well, does this really make sense to me? You know, does the Prophet have said this? Is this something that I want, can internalize? Even to this day, we hear many statements of the Prophet and we're very slow to jump on them. Sometimes we'll question them. Sometimes even, even if we accept it, we don't think this is something that we can necessarily implement in our own life. Abu Bakr was someone, he's probably the only person in history who never doubted the Prophet And this isn't my words, this is the words of the Prophet himself. Uh, he, the Prophet had said, uh, so, and I'll mention this hadith in a moment. So, what are the different ways that we see this manifested? We mentioned Abu Bakr's conversion to Islam. When Abu Bakr, when the, Abu Bakr, when he accepted Islam, he was a tradesman. This was what he did, and his trade route was between, you could say, Sham or modern-day Syria, Jordan, that area, and Yemen to the south, and in between was Mecca. So he would travel along this trade route, and he would trade. He was a very savvy businessman, very wealthy early on, and he would make frequently make these trips. And when the Prophet had initially received prophethood, Abu Bakr actually wasn't even in town. He was uh, on one of these trips. And he came back and he had heard this, this, this inkling of this nubuwa, of risala, of the Prophet, this prophethood that had come. And so he immediately went to the Prophet and he asked the Prophet about it. And the Prophet told him that he's been given revelation by Allah and he's the messenger of Allah. And what's remarkable is Abu Bakr instantaneously said, I accept. That was his first manifestation or exemplification of believing the Prophet and whatever he had said. He had already seen the Prophet being a truthful person, because I mentioned before, he was friends with the Prophet for many years before Nubuwa. So it was maybe easier for him. But there was no one who didn't hesitate. We mentioned the hadith yesterday, it comes in Tirmidhi. The Prophet said that whoever I invited to Islam, whoever I invited Probably a battery. Nope, the battery's strong. Whoever I invited to Islam, every single person had some hesitation. The one person who had no hesitation when it came to accepting Islam, it was Abu Bakr anhu. Everyone else had some hesitation. So his first pure, his first automatic acceptance of whatever the Prophet said, it was initially when he accepted Islam. Later, we know the story of Isra and Mi'raj. Again, exemplifying the love and friendship he had with the Prophet He never wanted to doubt the Prophet When the Prophet went for Isra and Mi'raj, overnight he had traveled to Jerusalem. From Jerusalem he went to the seven heavens, came back, and then he ended up coming back to Mecca Mukarramah. 
And a lot of people had doubt about this. A lot of people had doubt. In fact, the ulama mentioned there were even Muslims who had denied that this had even happened. They had left Islam because they're like, this doesn't make sense. So when he had come back, the Prophet ﷺ told a few of the Quraysh at the time, the, the, the kuffar, that he had made this journey and it just happened over the course of one night. And obviously at that time, without technology and airplanes and trains, etc., it was impossible to make that journey in one night. We're talking about weeks and weeks to make that journey. So they heard him and they already thought the Prophet ﷺ was majnoon and he was crazy and he would make up stories and he was a liar and they had all these names for him. But now this was the first proof that they had was like, oh, this is, he's definitely, uh, he's definitely a delusional person. Because now they are like, this is proof. So they asked him, what you're saying, they told Prophet ﷺ, what you're saying is you went to Jerusalem, went to the seven heavens, came back, and then came back to Mecca, and you did this all in one night. This is what you're saying. We just want to verify that we're hearing this correctly. And he's like, yes. And then they were like, great, this is perfect, because this is exactly what we need. Because if we tell the Muslims, at the time there were a handful of Muslims, not, not many, if we tell them that this is what their prophet or messenger is saying, they're all going to leave Islam. Because how could you accept something, accept, accept something that's so heinous? So the first person they decided to go to was Abu Bakr, because he was a leader. And they knew him. He was known to be a sensible person, a reputable person. He, wasn't, he was someone who, with a lot of intellect. He would think things through. He would process things. He was wealthy. He was seen as a person of influence and prominence. So they said, if we tell Abu Bakr the story, and he says, wow, yeah, that is craziness, He'll leave Islam, and then Islam is done because everyone else is going to say, well, Abu Bakr left it. So, so they went to Abu Bakr, and they told him, did you hear what your, your, your messenger, your best friend was saying? And he's like, what did he say? So then they tell him, he's saying he made this journey from here to there, from point A to Jerusalem, from Jerusalem to the seven heavens. He met with Allah, he came back down, and he traveled back to Mecca, and he's saying he did this all in one night. He did this all in one night. Can you believe that? And Abu Bakr radiallahu anhu is so intelligent, he says, is that what he said? And, if he, and he, so they, he wanted to verify, like, this isn't something you guys are making up. This is something that's coming from his tongue, right? Because if you're saying it, maybe you're lying. This is something that he's saying? And they said, yes. And then he said, if this is what he said, then I accept it. If this is what he said, then I accept it. I don't have any doubt in my mind. And then how could you accept this? And he's amazing his response. He said, you're concerned with how I'm accepting his traveling to Jerusalem and coming back in one night. I'm someone who accepts that he receives wahi from Allah consistently, and I have no doubt about that. How could I doubt some statement, a statement that he's making about his travels? Of course I accept it. So he never doubted the Prophet ﷺ. He never doubted him. I mentioned yesterday, it said about Abu Bakr, that when the Prophet ﷺ would make a statement, before the Prophet ﷺ would finish that statement, Abu Bakr would say, Sadaqtuka that you're telling the truth. You are telling the truth, even though he didn't even complete the statement. And everyone else is waiting to see, what did the Prophet have to say? Let me see if I can process and internalize it. Abu Bakr didn't need that. Before he finished the statement, he would say, Sadaqtuka, this is the truth. This is the truth. One final story about how he never doubted the Prophet as an exemplification of his friendship with the Prophet in the Treaty of Hudaybiyah, we know the story when the Muslims were going from Mecca to from Medina to Mecca, now in larger numbers with strength, to perform Umrah, and they were in a state of ihram, and they eventually were stopped by the Quraysh and the Kuffar, and they said, "You can't move any any further." So anyway, we know they, they camped at Hudaybiyah for a long period of time. It's a very long story, 
And uh, eventually, they had to sign a treaty with the Quraysh and the Kuffar. And that treaty was basically such that, look, you can't come this year. You have to go back and you can come back the following year. Now, this bothered a lot of the Sahaba. The Sahaba were very bothered by this because they said, what, what kind of terms are these? It was a totally one-way type of treaty. The Quraysh were getting whatever they wanted. So many of the Sahaba were very bothered by this. And they and Umar, anhu, who's, a, who's a very prominent Sahabi, once the terms, for instance, one term was, you know, they couldn't perform Umrah this year, they had to come back later. Another term was that if the if, if there was if there was one of the kuffar from the Quraysh were in Medina, they were to escape and go to Medina, the Muslims would have to safely return them back. But on the on the other hand, if there was a Muslim from Medina who had entered into Mecca, they didn't have to be returned back. They could they could be detained. Right? It was the terms were completely unfair. So this bothered many of the Sahaba. And they're like, this is just disgraceful. Umar, he says to the Prophet Sallallahu he said, Ya Rasulullah, are you not the messenger of Allah? He wasn't doubting him, but he was saying, are you not the messenger of, aren't, I mean, aren't you the messenger of Allah? Why is it that we're having to compromise here? And he said, aren't we on the truth? Like, what are we doing here that's wrong? I mean, it's, it would be fully justified for them to say, we're not accepting this treaty, we need to move forward. And the Prophet Sallallahu he couldn't budge. He said, I don't make this decision. These commands come from Allah. Umar was still very upset. And he went to Abu Bakr, and, and many of the Sahaba were upset. He went to Abu Bakr, and Abu Bakr, عنه, um, he says to Abu Bakr, like, you know, what is this? Like, this doesn't make any sense. Why are we giving in here? And Abu Bakr, عنه, responds, and he says to Umar, that Allah's messenger know, knows better than we do. Allah's messenger knows better than, better than we do. And what he's doing is in our best interest. And, and, and we can't, we shouldn't question it any further. Right? He's telling Umar, who is such a prominent Sahabi that the Prophet said that if there were to be a Prophet after me, it would be Umar. And he's telling Umar this. So, uh, and of course we know later that this was a, the treaty led to so much victory, right? They ended up, this conquest of Mecca was, you know, they were able to gain so much from this treaty. So, of this quality of love and companionship with the Prophet, no one, no one was above Abu Bakr. And the first way by which it's manifested is that he never doubted the Prophet So it's a lesson for us because the purpose of this is to take lessons from the life of Abu Bakr and his qualities and bring them into our own life. So we should look at ourselves and ask ourselves, you know, how am I when it comes to the Prophet and his sunnah and his words and his speech and his hadith? Do I question it? Do I doubt it? Do I have, do I have concerns about it? Or do I accept it for what it's worth? It's, it's, it's one thing to hear a statement of the Prophet and maybe feel uncomfortable with it initially, right? But it's another thing to say, hmm, I'm not sure that's true. I'm not sure that's the best way, to, best way for things to be. Abu Bakr never doubted the Prophet And for us as well, if it's something the Prophet said or did, we should have no hesitation about accepting it, right? Whether we can practice it or implement it is a different story. We're talking about the ability for us to accept the Messenger of Allah statements and his actions as being the truth. So we learn this from Abu Bakr The second of the same quality of his close companionship and his friendship and his love for the Prophet is that he never wanted any difficulty to reach the Prophet He never wanted any difficulty to reach the Prophet Now this is remarkable. Because we see throughout his life, uh, he was very close in proximity to the Prophet almost inseparable, you can say. 
the first incident when in the first six or seven years of, uh, of, 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 of prophethood, at the time there were only 38 or 39 Muslims, very few Muslims. This comes in um, one of the books of history. And there was a very famous incident that occurred. So Abu Bakr anhu, he was someone who really wanted Islam to become open or shared openly. Up until this point, it was all private. The da'wah was occurring privately. He really wanted Islam to be shared openly. But the Prophet ﷺ was saying at the time, was constructed by Allah that, look, you still have to keep things private. So they were propagating Islam quietly and secretly within Darul Arqam. Abu Bakr, we mentioned yesterday, he was so passionate about deen and this gift of iman that he wanted other people to, to know about this. So he kept asking the Prophet ﷺ, he would approach the Prophet ﷺ, the Rasulullah, can we now make an announcement? Can we openly, can we openly declare faith? Why is it that we have to keep hiding it? Can I do it openly? Prophet said, no, he can't. And he kept, he kept coming back to the Prophet Prophet said, no. He kept coming back. Prophet said, no. He kept coming back. And eventually the Prophet gave him permission, saying, okay, you can. So what he did was that he went to the mataf of the Kaaba, in Masjid al-Haram. He went to that area openly. Very few Muslims at the time. And the rest of the Muslims had kind of gone there. And at the time, you would sit with your tribes. The tribes would have their own locations kind of around the mataf. And so the Muslims would go, and there was still a tribal culture, so they would interact, the Muslims, non-Muslims, they would sit with their own tribes. And Abu Bakr radiallahu anhu went there, and he began preaching Islam. He started talking about Allah, he started talking about Islam, he started talking about the Prophet This was the first open khutbah, or open speech that was ever given in the history of Islam. So if anybody ever asks us, if, if, it's like a trivia question, right, which is that, who gave the first khutbah, or the first speech in Islam ever? It wasn't even the Prophet it was Abu Bakr He gave the speech and the Quraysh of Makkah were watching him because this was the first time they saw this and they were very bothered by it. Very bothered by it. So they start telling him to quiet down and stop and he couldn't stop because there was this flame in his heart. He was ignited with the, with the passion for deen and he wouldn't stop and eventually because he wouldn't stop through verbal, uh, through verbal means, they started attacking him physically. So they started punching him, literally punching him. And they took their shoes off and they started beating him with their shoes. And they completely surrounded him and they beat Abu Bakr anhu to a complete pulp. Just beat him, knocked him completely unconscious. Completely unconscious. At the time there were very few Muslims so there was not much defense there. I mean, they had to, you know, uh, there, there, there weren't many people that could come and defend him. But it was a tribal culture, so his tribe, which was the tribe of Banu Taym, when they heard that this was happening in front of the Kaaba, they immediately went there to save Abu Bakr. They weren't Muslim, much of his tribe. They weren't Muslim, but they had to save him, his life. It was their honor. He was unconscious. They basically prepared like a stretcher for him, right? Like a, like a cloth stretcher. And they carried him on this stretcher back to his home, back to the home of his, par- his mother and his father. And he was unconscious there. Now, uh, he, we know the story. He was, he was unconscious. And eventually, you know, after a period of time, he regained consciousness. And the first thing, and he was beaten to a pulp, I mentioned it already. He was swollen, bruised, uh, bleeding, right? And, 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 and again, finally regained consciousness. Severely injured, severely injured. And when he finally woke up, he, the first thing that came out of his mouth, the first thing that came out of his mouth was, ما فعل رسول الله? What? happened to the Prophet What's the state of the Prophet Because he did not want any difficulty to ever reach the Prophet This was his manifestation of love and friendship. 
He said, what's the state of the Prophet And when his father heard this, he's like, we just saved you. His father wasn't Muslim at the time. He later became Muslim. He was he just walked out of the room because he was like, this is what you're worried about. We just you know, you just woke up. What is this? Why are you so obsessed with this? And uh, his mother said, I don't know about the Prophet, but you need to eat and drink and receive nourishment because he's been unconscious and beaten and you need fluids. I mean, this is just, you don't worry about that right now. So he said, I swear by Allah, I will not eat or drink until I know what happened to the Prophet So she said, I don't know. I don't know what happened to him. She wasn't Muslim at the time. Her name was Umm Al-Khair. So he says to her, go to the house of Umm Jameel. Go to the house of Umm Jameel and ask her what happened to the Prophet So she goes to the house of Umm Jameel. Umm Jameel was bint al-Khattab. She was the daughter, uh, so she was the sister of Umar anhu. And she was a Muslim, but all the Muslims at the time were privately Muslim. They weren't openly Muslim. People knew Abu Bakr was Muslim, but they were privately Muslim. He knew that she would know the Prophet's state. So she tells, uh, he tells her to go there. So he sends his mom, Umm Al-Khair, to the house of Umm Jameel. And, he, and she asks Umm Jameel, what's the state of the Prophet? Our son Abu Bakr has now woken up, but he won't eat or drink until he knows what the state of the Prophet is. So tell me so I can go give him the news. So she's like wondering, okay, hold on, is this a trick here? Because she's not openly Muslim. So she can't say the state of the Prophet because then she's revealing her own Islam to the mother of Abu Bakr. So she's like, she kind of plays dumb. Like, I don't know. I mean, I don't know what happened with the Prophet. I mean, Abu Bakr, I what are you even talking about? Who are these people? Like, what do I know? So she's saying, look, we need to know his state. He told me to come and ask you. So she's very smart, Umm Jameel. She says, to the mother of Abu Bakr, she says, you know, I, I, I don't know what this is about. Why don't you take me to Abu Bakr and let me see if I can answer his question. Very smart. She doesn't have to reveal her Islam to the mother of Abu Bakr. Uh, at the same time, she can address whatever concern he has and she'll get a better sense of, is, is this a true question or not? It was, it was obviously a very tense society. So they go back to the house and Abu Bakr is there and uh, he asks, what's the state of the Prophet And she's hesitant. She doesn't want to say it because his mother is there, other people that aren't I haven't accepted Islam. She can't reveal her identity. So he looks at her and he says, don't worry, my mother is a good person. Even though she's not Muslim, she's a good person. You can go ahead and tell us what happened to the Prophet Meaning, don't worry, your, your secret will be safe. No harm will come on to you. It was then that Umm Jamil said that the Prophet is okay and he's doing fine. Abu Bakr wasn't content with it. He said, I want to see this with my own eyes. I will not eat or drink. I will not receive any nourishment until... I physically see with my own eyes the Prophet ﷺ being okay. Because he didn't, he couldn't handle the possibility of any difficulty reaching the Prophet ﷺ. So they take Abu Bakr. One arm he puts around the, his arm of his mother, uh, Umm Al-Khair. The other arm around Umm Jamil. And they drag him. They literally drag him to Darul Arqam. And then he finally sees the Prophet ﷺ. The Prophet ﷺ sees him. It was a very emotional exchange. Very emotional exchange. But he saw that the Prophet ﷺ was well. And it was then and only then that he decided to take care of him, his own self. He would give up himself and his life and his any injury for the sake of the Prophet ﷺ. But he couldn't, he couldn't but think that the Prophet ﷺ was hurting in any way. Incredible. His mother actually later, then he told the Prophet that this is my mother, Umm Al-Khair, please make dua for her, etc. And on the spot she accepted Islam as well. In fact, you know, this is a tangential point, but Abu Bakr was one of the few companions who every, no, he was the only companion, according to Ibn al-Jawzi, he was the only companion 
whom every single family member of his accepted Islam. The only companion, his mother, Umm al-Khayr, his father, Abu Quhafa, who accepted Islam after the conquest of Mecca, his children, Aisha, Asma, Abdurrahman, Abdullah, Abdurrahman later, he, he was hesitant initially, his entire family accepted Islam, and Ibn Jawzi mentions that he was the only companion who was given this blessing. And, and why wouldn't he be given this blessing? I mean, the concern that he had, why wouldn't he be given this blessing? So that was the first incident. Another incident occurred also in Mecca Mukarramah, showing his love for the Prophet ﷺ. There was an incident that the Prophet ﷺ now, initially in the first few years in Mecca, the Quraysh didn't physically attack the Prophet ﷺ because he was, had a lot of protection from Banu Hashim. But in his later years, they did physically assault the Prophet ﷺ. There was one incident we know where the insides of, a, of an animal were taken and thrown onto the body of the Prophet ﷺ. And another incident occurred, and this is what I'm going to mention, uh, and it comes in the Mustadrak, that the Prophet ﷺ was, was attacked by the Quraysh physically. Right? Once he was actually strangled by Uqba bin Abi Mu'id. So he was attacked by the Quraysh physically. And Abu Bakr anhu came to the defense of the Prophet Sallallahu And he came and he, and as quickly as he could, he pushed away every single attacker of the Prophet Sallallahu because he couldn't imagine the Prophet Sallallahu having any harm whatsoever reach him. And he kept on saying, making the statement, How can you hurt a person? Would you, how could you kill a person? Shame on you. How could you kill a person just for saying, just because they're saying that my Rabb is Allah? Like, because they were asking the Prophet of Allah, is this, do you still believe in this? And they were attacking him. And he, Abu Bakr is running around. Would you kill a person just because they're saying that their Lord is Allah? My Lord is Allah? What, what harm did this person cause you? What evil did this person commit? Why would you, why would you put this person through all the suffering and torture? And he's physically just fending off one after the other. And, and what's amazing is that the pe- many many Sahaba narrate this incident. Asma narrates this. Ali radiAllahu anhu. He was a child at the time, and he mentions uh, that when this incident happened, everybody, the rest of the Muslims were all helpless. He himself was a child; he couldn't do anything. The only person that came to the physical defense of the Prophet was Abu Bakr, which is why much later about this incident. After the, the Abu Bakr had passed away, the Prophet had passed away, much later, when Ali was the Khalifa in Kufa and Iraq, he was standing before the Sahaba there, and he asked the companions, he said, who is the bravest companion of all? Who is the bravest companion of all? So the Sahaba looked at Ali, and Ali was a, was a, was a strong, I mean, he was, he was in better shape than anyone else in this, he was in better shape than anyone here. Physically, he was tall, he was built, and he was known to be a warrior. And he never lost a battle, like a face-to-face battle. So they said, Ali, you of course, who else, is the, who else would be the bravest person? So Ali said, it's true. It's true that there's never been a, face to, a face-off between me and another person where I haven't overcome that person, where I haven't taken them down. That's never happened. That's true. But the bravest of all the companions is none other than Abu Bakr. Because on that day, in front of the Kaaba, when the Quraysh of Mecca attacked physically the Prophet ﷺ and they were beating him, there was only one person that came to the rescue of the Prophet ﷺ on that day in the face of all of those attackers. And that person was fending off one by one as much as he could, pulling people off the Prophet ﷺ, himself taking blows, 
and staying over and over again and we all were just watching this because we were young we didn't have we weren't old we couldn't defend the prophet we would have if we if we if we could but we couldn't at the time and we were all watching this and only one person defended the prophet that was abu bakr and when and the narration mentions that when ali, ali was telling the story to the companions there this is ali when he's mentioning the story to the companions he started crying so much that his beard became wet with tears when he was remembering that incident. So Abu Bakr was someone who couldn't handle any difficulty reaching the Prophet He couldn't handle any difficulty reaching the Prophet Fast forward now, many years later, finally the time came for Abu Bakr, for the Prophet to make the hijrah to Mecca to Medina. Now many of the Sahaba, almost all of the Sahaba had already left. They had all left quietly, escaped toward Medina Munawwara, Abu Bakr himself had a plan to leave now and make this hijrah. And when he told the Prophet ﷺ, I think it's time to go, the Prophet ﷺ said, hold on, just wait, just wait, just hold on. And the Prophet ﷺ, Abu Bakr asked the Prophet ﷺ, uh, ya Rasulullah? meaning your companionship, meaning if, is it possible that I'm going to actually accompany you on this journey? And the Prophet ﷺ said, yes, I'm hopeful that you will accompany me. So the Sahaba had all left. Now the Prophet ﷺ left behind and now he gets the hukum from Allah to make this journey. And he goes out in the afternoon time when the sun is beating down and most people in the desert at the time in Mecca would take a, a nap or a qailula. Even today, the, the, the city relatively shuts down between you know, Dhuhr and Asr when it's really hot outside, right? Not much activity is happening. So it was a safe opportunity for the Prophet ﷺ to escape. So Aisha narrates this, but the Prophet ﷺ left from his home and he tied like his turban around his face, you know, like just to cover his face so people couldn't see him. And he approached the house of Abu Bakr radiallahu anhu. And Abu Bakr radiallahu anhu and Aisha were waiting there. And Aisha saw the Prophet arriving. And although his face was covered, she could tell this was the Messenger of Allah. And Abu Bakr saw the Prophet coming and he became very hopeful that maybe this is, maybe this is, maybe this is my chance. The Prophet comes to the door of Abu Bakr and he knocks. And Abu Bakr looks at the Prophet and he looks at the Prophet and he asks, Prophet, ya Rasulullah? Your companionship? Like, am I going to be given this glad tiding of accompanying you on this journey? The Prophet said, Al-Suhba, Abu Bakr. That yes, you will be getting my companionship. The Prophet, Abu Bakr, upon hearing this news, he began to cry out of joy. And Aisha, she mentions, because she was in the house, she looks and she mentions in, in the hadith, she says, I never knew that a human being that a person could cry out of joy until that day when I saw my father crying out of joy about getting the news that he would be the companion of the Prophet It's incredible because the journey of the Prophet from Mecca to Medina is not, this isn't vacation from here to Florida, we're going on, on spring break. This isn't, hey, we're going to Umrah, this is going to be a celebratory occasion. This is, there are, you know, hundreds and hundreds of kuffar and there's a hundred camel bounty on attacking and finding us dead or alive. This is an escape that they had to make. Most of us aren't signing up to, to help a, fu you know, a, a fugitive escape. We're not excited about this opportunity. We're saying, isn't there someone else you can find? <laughs> Why are you picking me? Right? Well, do, find someone else. I don't, I'm going to secretly escape. But if I have to travel with you and I know that I'm wanted dead or alive and you're wanted dead or alive and, and the person who finds us dead or alive is going to be given a hundred camel bounty, a hundred cars are going to be given in reward, right? A hundred thousand dollars or a million dollar reward. I don't want to be on this journey. But the, Abu Bakr was the one who wanted to be with the Prophet on this journey and this is the one who was given that gift. 
He didn't want any difficulty to reach the Prophet They began their journey. This is Mecca, Medina is up here. And rather than going this way, Abu Bakr had planned out this route through a guide that they were going to go south first toward the cave of Thor. Toward the cave of Thor. That this was an area that they were going to hide out and spend three days and three nights over there. The Prophet had, had, had planned this out with, and Abu, Abu Bakr was involved. They secretly went to this cave and they climbed up this mountain. And you may, many of you may have been to this area. You may have seen it from a distance. It's a very steep mountain. I mean, it takes someone who's in good shape and a relatively experienced hiker can get up there in about an hour's worth of time. And now imagine doing this with the pressure of all these people trying to find you because you're now with a fugitive. Anyways, they eventually get to the top of the mountain. And now this cave of Thor, if anyone's ever been to the top, it's not easy to find. It's not like you could just go there and there's a cave. You have to kind of go up the mountain. You got to come back from the backside a little bit. There's a little bit. You have to find it. It's hidden. Eventually, they found this cave, and it's a very tiny cave. It's a very tiny cave. You could fit. I mean, you can't stand in there. You can sit. And if, if you've been in that cave, it's, you can actually go there today. It's, it's and obviously much more. It's lo- much larger now because of the thousands of people that have entered it and the weathering that occurs, and there's more space. It's relatively uncomfortable. It's uncomfortable. Spending three days and three nights there is pretty uncomfortable. And if you're claustrophobic, I mean, good luck, right? So Abu Bakr tells the Prophet wait outside this cave. I want to make sure this place is clean. This is him making sure the Prophet is comfortable because he did not want any difficulty to reach the Prophet. So he goes into the cave first and he sees a bunch of holes within the cave. So he takes, he doesn't have much on him. He takes his shirt off he tears it apart into pieces and he plugs in his turban and he plugs every single hole that he can see because this is a cave on the top of a mountain. There's creatures, wild animals, and he doesn't want anything happening to the Prophet. He plugs every single hole. They go inside the cave, but there's only there's one hole left. One hole is left. And he knows that he needs to close that hole somehow. The Prophet comes in, the Prophet is very tired, and he decides to take a nap, and he takes a nap in the lap of the Abu Bakr radiallahu anhu. He puts his head down and he sleeps. And Abu Bakr, out of concern that something might harm the Prophet ﷺ from that hole, he takes his, his foot and, his, and, he, and he covers that hole with his foot. Now we know that eventually a snake was trying to come out of that hole. And there's many narrations about why that snake was there and what it was there. And you know, some scholars mention it was trying to see the face of the Prophet ﷺ out of love. It was trying to get through that hole and it started... Um, uh, biting uh, the uh, Abu Bakr on his foot. He was in so much pain, so much pain, so much pain, but he couldn't, he couldn't, he had to hold it in because he didn't want to disrupt the sleep of the Prophet because that's how much he cared about not hurting or disturbing the Prophet One is to protect the Prophet from these animals. A second is, I care about you so much that I don't want even your sleep to be disrupted because my life could be lost here today, right? But your sleep is even more important than my, my, than my being awake and my life. Abu Bakr who couldn't tolerate the pain. The scholars mentioned two reasons. He started crying and tears fell onto the face of the Prophet The scholars mentioned, some scholars say he was crying out of pain because now he was bitten by a snake and that's painful. The other scholars mentioned that he was actually crying because he thought he was going to die. And he didn't have an opportunity to say salam to the Prophet before passing away. So he cried. Anyways, he cried and the tears fell on the face of the Prophet and the Prophet woke up, he saw what happened and he took his blessed saliva and he put it on the foot of Abu Bakr and Abu Bakr completely healed from that. 
But look at the companionship and the love that he had and his desire that no difficulty reached the Prophet As the hijrah continues, the narr- one narration mentions that as the Prophet is walking from Mecca now to Medina, uh, that the Abu Bakr عنه, he's walking behind the Prophet and then the next minute he walks in front of the Prophet the next minute he comes back and walks behind the Prophet then he goes and walks in front of the Prophet you'd think like what is this person doing why is he going back and forth so the Prophet asks him what are you doing like why why do you keep walking behind me and in front and behind me in front why are you moving around like a madman I mean he, these aren't the words but this is you know why would you do this Abu Bakr anhu, because he didn't want any difficulty to ever reach the Prophet he said at that time to the Prophet the Ya Rasulullah when I'm standing before you, I'm afraid that you're vulnerable from the back and someone might attack you from the back. So when that thought comes into my mind, I immediately rush to the back because I want to protect you from the back. And when I'm walking from behind you to protect you from the back, I realize that you're vulnerable from the front and somebody might come from the front. And I don't want anyone to attack you from the front. When that thought comes into my mind, I then switch positions and go back to the front. And this he kept repeating because he couldn't imagine any difficulty reaching the Prophet now, the Abu Bakr radiallahu anhu, this was his life, right? This was him attached to the Prophet He was next to the Prophet in every single battle. He was right with the Prophet In Badr, he was with the Prophet In Badr in particular, you know, mentioning how he couldn't want the Prophet to, to struggle in any way. This is an incredible incident. The night before Badr, the battle of Badr, when the Sahaba, they were not prepared to fight. They were not intending to, to fight. They weren't even. They were ill-equipped, and they were an hour or two from Medina by car today. And now they were going to be attacked by a thousand Quraysh who were well-equipped with a proper ca- with the uh, with uh, with cavalry and everything, weapons. And the Prophet and his army of three hundred thirteen people had nothing. So the night before, the Prophet had set up camp in a place called Al Adish. It's in Badr. You can visit it. There's a masjid they've built on it today. And that night he's making such deep dua to Allah Ta'ala that Allah Ta'ala help them because they need help now more than ever before. And if Allah Ta'ala wouldn't help them on that day, then Islam would come to an end because the Prophet would then come to an end as well. So he's making dua that night and his arms are elevated like this. And he's making dua, his elbows were up. Like you could see the whites of his underarms. He's making dua like this. And Abu Bakr, again, so close to the Prophet physically, emotionally, psychologically, and he sees the Prophet making dua in this way. And he comes to the Prophet Prophet making dua like this, and his shawl falls shawl falls off his back. The Prophet is, is making dua, and Abu Bakr comes up behind the Prophet, he takes his shawl, puts it back upon the shoulders of the Prophet, and then he tells the Prophet, Ya Rasulullah, Hasbuk, Hasbuk, Hasbuk Allah, enough, no more. Like Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will most certainly take care of you. You don't need to be doing this. Meaning that even the burden of this kind of dua, Abu Bakr radiallahu anhu had difficulty watching this. Because this was something the Prophet was struggling with. Even this degree of burden on the Prophet was intolerable to Abu Bakr. This was the love and friendship that he had. That even in this situation and circumstance, he said the Prophet, so Prophet enough is enough, Ya Rasulullah. You've already asked enough. Enough is enough. He was with the Prophet in the Battle of Badr, side by side. The Battle of Uhud, side by side with the Prophet In the small group afterward, in the second part of the battle, he was the one that was worked with Abu Bakr radiallahu anhu. Um, he wasn't that closest. We mentioned yesterday, Talha was that companion who was holding the Prophet with his left arm and he was fending him off 
you know, all, spears and swords and 70 stab wounds to 70 wounds to the body of Talha. And Abu Bakr radiallahu anhu, although he was in that small group, he mentions in, in, one, in one narration that, you know, I was not jealous, but I, I wish I had the role of Talha on that day, who was literally connected to the Prophet He outdid me on that day. He outdid me on that day. Right? This was Abu Bakr's, you know, thinking, wow, I, you know, I, this is how much he, he wanted to be with the Prophet and protect him in every way, shape, or form. He was with him in Badr, Uhud, Khandaq, every single battle. He was always side by side with the Prophet So we see how Abu Bakr had such a deep love for the Prophet that one, he would never doubt anything he ever said. And number two, he couldn't imagine any difficulty coming to the Prophet and he did whatever he could to protect the Prophet from any difficulty. I'm going to end with these two small stories just to highlight how uh, how Abu Bakr anhu was with the Prophet There was one incident happened. The Prophet was sitting in Masjid Nabawi much later and the companions were there and Abu Bakr anhu he walks into the masjid from a distance. And he's walking and he's he looks he looks perturbed. And the Prophet sees it in his eyes because he knows Abu Bakr well. And he looks at Abu Bakr in the eyes and he says, something must be wrong. He makes a statement out loud. Something must be wrong, Abu Bakr. What happened? Abu Bakr walks in. He's holding his like trousers like this. And you can see part of his legs. And he walks up and he comes right next to the Prophet and The companions are sitting there. Abu Bakr tells the Prophet and This is narrated by Abu Darda, this narration. He tells the Prophet that, Ya Rasulullah, uh, As-salamu alaykum, Ya Rasulullah. He gives a salam. So he says, Ya Rasulullah, Abu ba- uh, Umar and I got into a disagreement. We got into a little bit of an argument. And it happens, right? I mean, they were, they, this is just matri- human, human nature. We got into a little bit of an argument, and I said a few things to Umar that I probably shouldn't have said. I said a few things to Umar that I probably shouldn't have said. And I asked Umar to forgive me, but he wouldn't forgive me. And I'm so bothered by this that I'm coming to you. Incredible, right? I mean, Abu Bakr is like, he's so concerned about a subtlety, which is, I got into an argument, I said a few things bad, this person's not forgiving me, and this is bothering me so much that I'm coming to you. Because Abu Bakr was someone who, he couldn't, he forget hurting the Prophet obviously that's very important, he couldn't offend or usurp the rights of any person he interacted with. So the Prophet saw this on Abu Bakr's face, and he Took, he, he kind of patted him on the shoulder and he said, don't worry Abu Bakr, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will forgive you. Don't worry Abu Bakr, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will forgive you. Then Umar who comes walking into the masjid. And what happened was Umar, he didn't want to accept the apology initially, but he changed his mind. So he wanted to accept the apology of Abu Bakr. So he went to the house of Abu Bakr to find Abu Bakr and say, look, listen, I accept your apology. He couldn't find him there. So he's like, he must be in the masjid. Because at the time, I mean, the masjid was a second home. He's probably there. So he comes to the masjid. He walks, the Prophet sees Umar, and he locks eyes with Umar. And the look in the Prophet's eyes is one of, of being upset. And Abu Bakr is looking at the Prophet, he's looking at Umar, and he's seeing the eyes of the Prophet on Umar, and he's like, uh oh, this is a problem. So he tells the Prophet, Ya Rasulullah, I did something wrong, not him. I was the one that said something that was inappropriate. It wasn't him. This is, he didn't do anything wrong. This was me. Let's, not, let's make sure we get this straight. 
And the Prophet ﷺ, Umar comes forward and he sits down. The Prophet ﷺ makes a statement and the Sahaba are all listening. Right? And he's saying this to Umar. If you understand the context of the love that he had for Umar, then I mean, it's incredible what he says. He says, essentially he says, when will you leave this person alone? Meaning Abu Bakr. Not you to Umar, but when will you people leave this individual Abu Bakr alone? That when I approached you all about Islam, every single person, Umar for instance didn't accept Islam for many years, right? In fact, he, at one point he left, right before he accepted Islam, or as he's accepting Islam, he actually left his house to go and kill the Prophet We know the story. So, Prophet said that every single person I approached about Islam, they said, فَقُلْتُمْ كَذَبْتَ He's saying this. He said, they all said, or you all said, that you're lying. And the only person that accepted Islam without any hesitation, the only person without any hesitation was this person. And he said, وَقَالَ أَبُوْ بَكَرْ صَدَقْتَ Abu Bakr who said that you have spoken the truth. And this is the companion who has spent everything on me and taken care of me. When will you leave this person alone? Like he's already done so much. Like please, you know, just leave this person alone. You know, it just shows how valuable he was in the eyes of the Prophet but how valuable he should be in our eyes as well. Um, you know, in one hadith, the Prophet ﷺ said, and we'll talk about this next time, he said that, I have repaid the debt of every single one of you to the Sahaba, except Abu Bakr. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will pay him back on the Day of Judgment. Right? So, talking about, so, so I'm going to mention one final incident, because I, I don't want to, I want to keep this focus, which is that we're talking, speaking today specifically about the love and friendship that Abu Bakr had with the Prophet ﷺ. Highlighted by one, him never doubting the Prophet ever, and two, by Abu Bakr radiallahu anhu never wanting any difficulty to ever come to the Prophet physically, emotionally, psychologically, whatever it may be. I'm going to mention one final incident. One could argue that if the Prophet if the Abu Bakr was so attached to the Prophet then maybe he didn't have enough time or energy or to take care of everyone else. Like, how could he attend to the needs of everyone else if he was always so close to the Prophet So I'm going to mention one hadith. The Prophet was sitting with companions. He had them sit down. And Abu Bakr was amongst them. And he calls out and he asks the question, Who from amongst you is fasting today? Who from amongst you is fasting today? So Bilal, he raised his hand. And Abu Bakr said, Ya Rasulullah, I'm, I'm fasting. Okay, then the Prophet asked the next question. He says, who from amongst you followed a burial or a janazah today? And one of the companions said, I did. And Abu Bakr who looks around, no one else raises their hand, and he says, Ya Rasulullah, I did. Meaning I followed a burial, prayed the janazah, buried the individual and came back. Prophet says, okay, who from amongst you visited a sick person today? And Abu Bakr looks around, and no one raises their hand, and he puts his hand up. He says, Ya Rasulullah, I visited a sick person today. Prophet said, who from amongst you fed a poor person today? Abu Bakr looking around and none of the companions, these are companions by the way, right? these are Sahaba, no one raised their hand. Abu Bakr looks around and he reluctantly says, Ya Rasulullah, I, I did this. I did this as well. Meaning, in one day, Abu Bakr did all of these things, three actions of which pertain to serving the community, burying, taking care of the poor and visiting the sick. Incredible. Someone who's so attached to the Prophet you could say he never left the side of the Prophet still maintained responsibility to the rest of the community. It's incredible. It wasn't that he 
never doubted the Prophet He didn't want any taklif to reach the Prophet But he was as always attached to this person and he never took care of anyone else's needs. You know, kind of like today. We love someone where, 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 you know, we get married and we're in love for the first year and the only person we could think about is this person, right? Or, or, or maybe we have some other person in our life that's like this. Abu Bakr was a very well-rounded person. The Prophet said at that moment, he said that whoever can do all four of these things it is, upon, it is for them that they can enter from any door of Jannah that they wish. This was Abu Bakr So the take-home points for today, when it pertains to the second phase of his life where he's exemplifying his love and companionship for Rasulullah number one is that for us, that we should ask ourselves, how ready am I to accept the statements and actions of the Prophet Am I someone who hesitates? Am I someone who has doubt? Am I someone who questions or challenges when, when I hear something about the Messenger Wasallam, Or am I someone like Abu Bakr who bef- I automatically accept it as truth? This is, this is what we should be aspiring for. Again, it's human nature to sometimes maybe feel uncomfortable or be unwilling or unable to initially inculcate whatever it is. But without a doubt, it, whatever the Prophet said or did, this is the truth. So we, like Abu Bakr anhu, should be ready to accept it and we should be very mindful about this. We should ask ourselves, how readily do I accept anything that comes from the Messenger of Allah The second thing we should ask ourselves is, in light of the way Abu Bakr was with his treatment of the Prophet am I doing anything? Look, the Prophet is not alive today. So I can't necessarily protect the Prophet physically or emotionally today. But am I doing anything in my own life that's potentially bringing harm to the Prophet is there anything in my life that I'm doing that's potentially bringing harm to the Prophet What I mean by this is, you know, is it that is my example or my character such that when people see me, they think negatively of the Prophet They said, this person is supposed to be representing Muhammad, but look at his or her actions and character. Am I doing something in my own life that's potentially mocking the Prophet Or is it that when people look at me, they see the Prophet being exemplified? Right? So, so we should ask ourselves this question. We should ask ourselves these questions. Is there anything I'm doing that's potentially harming the Prophet? Or, for instance, is there something in my life, sins I'm involved in, that potentially will, will delay the Prophet's entry into Jannah? Meaning, we know the Prophet on the judgment will intercede for us. But if there's a lot of intercession that needs to occur because I've spent my life in disobedience of Allah, and have involved myself in so many things that have been against the character and teachings of the Prophet and he now has to intercede for me for an extended period of time, am I potentially bringing some degree of difficulty on the Prophet on the Day of Judgment? When I meet the Prophet on the Day of Judgment, because of my inability to perform as a, as a proper believer, is this going to bring some taklif or some difficulty? And when the Prophet sees me, is he going to be happy to see me? Or is he going to be disappointed in seeing me? And if this disappointment, that's some degree of difficulty I brought to him. And Abu Bakr would not have tolerated that in any way. He would just not have tolerated it. So there's many layers to this. And we can ask ourselves these questions. That one, how am I with the statements and actions of the Prophet And number two, is there anything I'm doing that will bring harm to the Prophet either in this life or in the hereafter? And if so, what can I do to rectify these things? So inshallah, tomorrow... After Dhuhr, we'll conclude. And the final session will be on Abu Bakr radiallahu anhu as a leader. And I think this is perhaps the most amazing of his characteristics, which is 
in this desperate and dire circumstance of the Prophet leaving this world, what, who, and no one else was ready to step up. It was Abu Bakr that was able to carry this ummah forward. And we'll see qualities in him that Umar mentions that no leader of the Muslims ever after him was able to ever replicate what Abu Bakr did. So inshallah tomorrow we'll highlight some of his leadership qualities and it's really a, it's, it's an eye-opener for all of us. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala allow us to uh, uh, allow us to appreciate these special qualities of Abu Bakr. May Allah Taala allow us to accept anything that comes from the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam without any without hesitation. And may Allah subhanahu wa taala um, grant us the tawfiq and, and the ability to to never harm or disappoint the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam, be it in this life or in the hereafter. Wa akhiru da'wana alhamdulillahi rabbil alamin.